Hello, it's Marcus Kauke again, and today I'm delighted to have Dr. Mark Goulson, the author of my favorite book in the last 30 years, Just Listen. Mark, thank you very much for being on the show today. Do you mind giving the listeners a quick potted history of your background and how you came to write Just Listen? Well, my background is I was trained as a psychiatrist, a clinical psychiatrist, and my focus was on intervening with suicidal people, dying people. And what would happen is I would go and visit dying founders, and I would resolve situations in hours that they'd never resolved ever. And some of these were founders of closely held businesses. And the second generation would say, can you come in and help us? And I said, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm a psychiatrist. I, I deal with jealousy, throwing people under the bus, vindictiveness. You have any of that? And they would say, that's all we have. <laughs> and uh, so I would step in, and I guess my way of dealing with things, and, and again, I was a suicide specialist, is I could identify the elephant in the room and put it into words. And when you identify the elephant in the room, when I would meet these families, they'd look at each other and they'd say, well, looks like that's out in the open. We better deal with it. But I think what caused me to write Just Listen is being a suicide expert and then I went on to train FBI and police hostage negotiators, was trying to teach people the power of empathy. And by empathy, I mean, it's not enough that, that you understand people and they feel understood. It's when people feel felt by you, they open up to you. And I think it's particularly relevant to sales because one of the reasons sales have so much trouble too often, ambitious and aggressive salespeople, transactional people, the people receiving what you're saying, they don't feel felt by you. They feel run over by you, mm -hmm. which triggers a lot of pushback and nodding from the neck up to be polite and never buying anything from you. You know, I, I see this a lot. I, I've been guilty of it myself. I remember when I first started using Sandler. I really struggled with the whole concept of Sandler's number one rule, nurture, nurture, nurture. And as a result of that, what it was like was I was using the techniques as a weapon. And my prospects felt bulldozed, rollercoastered. They felt uncomfortable. And they began to see me as the problem, so they didn't do business with me. And it took a, a fair amount of failure to learn that actually what I needed to do was really pay attention, because I think attention is a currency. And one of the things I love about the work that you do is where you talk about listening, not for just for understanding, but for insight and helping people to persuade themselves almost. So I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that persuasion cycle, if you would. To make a compelling case for those people listening who are at the stage you were before you were nurturing people, where you rolled over people. Here's the case that I make for hardened salespeople and why you might want to learn this empathy stuff. And I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a medical doctor, psychiatrist, board certified. So when you are trying to sell another person and you're pushy, you trigger something called cortisol. And cortisol is associated with stress. If you trigger yeah. enough cortisol and people get stressed out enough, it starts to trigger something in your brain, in your emotional brain, called your amygdala. 
and your amygdala comes out of its holster and it hijacks the other person away from being able to think or consider what you're saying because what they're then thrown into is fight or flight. So they may nod from the neck up because you know they don't want to provoke you because you're aggressive, but they're not going to do anything you say. So when you sell, you trigger cortisol. Now the opposite of cortisol, the antidote to cortisol, which is stressful, is oxytocin, which is the hormone that's connected to bonding. And what elevates oxytocin is not just listening and understanding, it's caring about what you're hearing. So it's not just Absolutely. an intellectual understanding, they feel cared about. And what happens is when people feel cared about, they lean into it. And so here's the deal. When you can increase the oxytocin in your customer, when they trust you at least as much as they have confidence in you, they lean into that. And plus, their cortisol goes down, their amygdala goes back into its holster, and they can actually consider what you're saying. It's helpful if what you're saying is attached to a service or product that is not a piece of junk. So when I work with people, I don't work with people who sell junk. I work with people who actually sell stuff that adds value and provide solutions to their customers because it's part of my brand and my integrity. I, I, I'm just not associated with junk or junky people. But that's what you, yeah. you want to do is you want to increase the uh, oxytocin instead of increasing their cortisol. So uh, I'm humbled by the success of my books and Just Listen became the top book on listening, actually empathic listening in the world. And some people have said that I'm the top expert in empathic listening. And I think that's a lot of hoo-ha-ha, but you know, it's a nice compliment. So I was asked to speak to managers and CEOs of the Russian Federation in Moscow. And I went there in October and actually, there's a highlights reel. If you look up Goulston, G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N, Moscow on YouTube, you'll find it. And it's a three-minute reel. And they did that because they said you engage the audience for six hours and nobody fell asleep. But there was an exercise I did in there, which shows you the power of what I'm talking about. About three hours into it, I developed a rapport and I said to them, I, I want to do an exercise with you. And so partner with the person next to you. And I want you to look into their eyes. And I taught them how to look into people's eyes because I have a way of looking into people's eyes that's not intimidating at all. I mean, it comes from my work as a suicide specialist uh, where I look into people's eyes and I'm just looking for where they're alone and desperate. And they see me right. looking for that. And then they hook on to that as a lifeline. So I taught them how to do that. And I said, look into your partner's eyes and ask them, what is something you're excited about this year? And share that with each other. And so they did that. And then I uh, asked a couple of people to share what they had said. And I said, how did that feel? And they said, well, that was exciting. You know, it was nice to hear what people were up to. And that was really great. And I said, well, that's terrific. And I want you to go back to your partner and each share something you're very embarrassed about. And I'm going to go first as a role model up here. So I'm up there roaming around on the stage in front of 450 people. And I said, something I'm excited about is Getting people to connect and care about each other is my mission in life. I mean, that's what I did with families. That's what I did with uh, connecting suicidal people with a reason to live. And I said, 
I'm pretty excited because, look, I'm in Moscow with the Russian Federation, and I get to teach you how to connect with each other. That's really exciting. And I said, now, something I'm embarrassed about, though, is I'm a show-off and a name-dropper. And I know some pretty important people, so I get away with it. And I'd like to say it's a work in progress, except I have made no progress at all. In fact, I'm getting worse. And every time I do it, every time I name-drop, Afterwards, I, I get away with it, but I say to myself, you know, could you brag any more than that? I mean, how insecure, Mark, but I don't seem to be able to put a lid on it. And I'm embarrassed about it. So they then shared things with each other. And I called some people out and I said, what did that feel like? And they said, that felt better. And I said, really? And I said, oh, by the way, did you feel less about the, your partner when they shared that? And they said, no, I actually felt more about them. I like them more. I said, so here's what happened. And this brings me back to the, the neuroscience. I said, when you talked about something you were excited about, you both got a, a nice dose of dopamine, which is pleasurable, and even adrenaline, which is exciting. And the point is, you can get that from a video game. You can get that from a movie. You can get that from a lot of things. And so it's not that unusual but when you shared something that you were embarrassed about and the other person didn't judge you, you got five minutes of oxytocin. And if any of you feel disconnected from life, if any of you feel alone and lonely, you got a five-minute break from it and you all jumped into it because you all feel that. And it flipped the whole room around. So can you picture that in your mind's eye? Absolutely. Well, it, interestingly enough, one of the things that we teach our clients to do is to lead with a, a weakness or a vulnerability. I didn't realize the neuroscience behind it, but it makes a heck of a difference. If, if you want someone to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. If you want to engage at a really fundamental level, where people are opening up to you and telling you about what's really going on. Because I, I, th I think one of the big problems that salespeople create for themselves is that because of how they behave, they get reflected back what they project out. And often they're needy, they're desperate, um, they push. And so in defending the prospect sounds like they're attacking. And so you end up in this cycle of violence and it's, uh, I said, he said, I said, he said, and then World War III breaks out and you end up with this impasse. But a lot of people are just too polite to do that. So they'll just fob you off and they'll ask you for a proposal or send me something. So when we open a prospecting call in order to try and secure a meeting, we'll often lead with, Mark, I'm afraid this is a cold call. Would you like to hang up? And we normally get laughter. The only people who don't laugh generally are actuaries and engineers. Um, but anyone in business, anyone in sales, and, you know, and, and anyone who runs a, a business will typically laugh at that point, and they'll give you the time that you need to create the engagement. So I love that. I mean, th tell me this, how long does cortisol and adrenaline flush around the brain in the system uh, if you don't give them an oxytocin flush? Regarding cortisol, it can stay there for a long time, and I'll tell you, one of the reasons women live longer than men, and I'm going to give you a takeaway that may not help your sales if you listen to it, but it might help you get lucky tonight. <laughs> so 
when cortisol goes up and stress goes up, the way men deal with it is they withdraw, they pull away because they're feeling vulnerable, stressed out. They don't want anyone or other men to see it. And then they come up with a strategy to take the hill. And then they come back and they master whatever the stress was, but their cortisol stays high. So what happens is the cortisol has stressed them out, but they've been able to use their adrenaline and testosterone to override it. And they feel like king of the universe. But the problem is that hurts blood pressure, stroke, create strokes, all kinds of stress-related illnesses. Whereas women, when their cortisol goes up, they naturally know that oxytocin makes them feel better. And so women tend to talk and they know that if they can get their frustration or stress out and get it heard, which is a big challenge with the men in their lives often, is they know that if they can just get it off their chest without someone giving them advice or a solution that they don't want, that once it's up and out, their amygdala will go back into their holster, they'll calm down, uh, and they'll come up with their own solutions. And so here's the takeaway that's probably going to be the best part of our conversation. There's something called mediated catharsis. And mediated catharsis means when you can put into words the negative things that another person is feeling towards you but would be hesitant to tell you because they think you'll get defensive. And by the way, you will get defensive if they, if they initiate it. But when you enable them to do that, they have a catharsis, get things off their chest, and they feel good about it. Let's say you're the male energy. And sometimes this is it's not just male and female, because sometimes an aggressive woman has this kind of testosterone-laden energy. I don't mean it to be only about the more traditional views of things. But let's say you're a solution-oriented person, and when you get into a discussion or debate or argument with your partner, or even someone in your company, a partner who's more emotional, more creative than you, than they are analytical, often what happens is that that escalates. And when they escalate, the more emotionally driven person, you kind of shut down. So what the mediated catharsis would look like is, let's say you're the man and you're the more logical, linear person, and the person you're dealing with is the more emotional one. When you get into an argument, and it's escalating, what you say to the other person, and let's say we'll call you Jack, and we'll say the other person will call Joan. So what Jack says to Joan as it's escalating is in exactly this tone. Joan, Joan, I, I've got a way to make this work out better. So just play along with me, okay, Joan? And so she's going to say, what? Yeah, Joan, just play along with me, and if it doesn't go well, we'll just go back to you know where we were arguing. You know, we won't lose our place in it. Just play along with me. And so she's kind of dumbfounded, and you say, Joan, say this to me, please. Look in my eye and say, Jack, uh, when you when we get like this, and you give me solutions, and you give me advice that I don't want, you know, you treat me like a stupid problem, just a problem to you, you know. And and I'm not stupid, you know. I'm stupid to try to have a conversation with you because you just don't get it because you're you're rather clueless. And so, Joan, could you say that to me and then put a little of your spirit in it and put a little of your feeling in it? And what happens is she, she she's going to go, what? But as you coax her to have that catharsis, if you notice her, she's going to start giggling. 
because you're enabling okay. her to get the frustration off her chest safely, and you don't get defensive because you just gave her the permission to do that. This is really interesting because that's exactly the kind of thing that we teach. So I'm delighted that there's some science behind this as well. You lead with the problem. You raise the objections before they do. You tell them that it's okay to say no. Actually, virtually everything that you've just described is how we teach people to neutralize objections. Because in the sale, I don't think you should be handling objections. The prospect has to discover for themselves why they want what you have. They do the presentation themselves. They handle their own objections and they close themselves. If you're doing Sandra properly, that's exactly what should happen. Now I understand better why it works. So this is really fascinating. This will make you chuckle. So the opposite end of this, I remember speaking to someone we'll call Joan, and she said, you know, I got a problem with my husband, Jack. When we meet other people, people sort of respect Jack, but he's kind of boring and he's a stiff. Whereas people right. like me, but I blither. And when I blither, I make Jack kind of crazy. And when I blither in a conversation with him, it makes him even crazier. So I told Joan to do the following. So the next time they had a, uh, an argument, she says this to Jack. Jack, I I've got a way out of this. Uh, can we try something different? You know, we can go back to it. And of course, Jack is happy then. Oh, great. Well, yeah, I it's all over. That's great. Let's go. Let's go to dinner. Let's go have a drink. We'll have sex later. Everything's fine. Uh, but then Joan said, uh, Jack, say this to me. And she said, look in my eye, Jack, and say, Joan, when we, have a, when we have a discussion and you get all emotional, and if I say something, it's wrong. If I say nothing, it's wrong. You make me want to run into the wall full speed and smack my head into it, and you drive me crazy. So she said, can you say that? Can you say that to me, Jack? And of course, he's a little bit constipated because he's a little bit left brain engineer type. So he sort of says that when you do, okay, Joan, when you do that, you make me kind of, you know, crazy and yada, yada, yada. And she says, come on, Jack, you can do better than that. And so four days later, she calls me and she says, I did what you said. And I said, what happened? And she said, I've got good news and bad news. And I said, what's the good news? Well, I did exactly what you said. And he was a little uncomfortable expressing these things. But because I wasn't defensive, I just said, come on, you can, you can do much better than that. You've been holding back for years, Jack. Come on, let it all out. And she said after five minutes, he was venting. He was bringing things up from, you know, three relationships ago. I mean, he was just letting go of everything. And, and that's the good news. And I didn't get defensive. I said, what's the bad news? And she said, well, after he did that, he looked at me and he told me how much he loves me and how much he adores me and how I'm his best friend. And now all he's hugging me all time. He's like a puppy dog. He's starting to really <laughs> creep me out. <laughs> I said, don't worry, it'll fade. Uh, but, but you at least have some tools to use. But can you see the power of mediated catharsis? Absolutely. It's incredible. So I'd like to take this slightly further then. In terms of how you do this with yourself, because I think one of the things that I come across a lot is that salespeople have a tendency to fall foul 
of their own inner voice. They find a way to catastrophize. They have this I'm not worthy script. They tell themselves that they're going to get found out, that this won't work. Conceptually, they have a problem with being in sales. They have a problem talking about money. They have a problem talking about asking difficult questions. And I'd love to get your take on how you can mediate with yourself, if you like, pull down from that amygdala hijack that goes on so that you can perform in the role. What do you think? Well, I think the problem that salespeople have, and I'll get political, I think it's also a problem that President Trump has, mm -hmm. is they don't want to be found out how little they care about the success of their customer. And so the inner dialogue is they're saying, all I care about is the sale. I got to close. I got to meet my numbers. And I'm worried about not meeting my numbers. And this is a big client, by the way. And if I, and if I don't uh, sell this client, my boss is going to throw me under the bus and say, you lost the biggest client. So I have all of that pressure. And what I don't want the customer to realize is I don't care about their success. I don't really care about them. Uh, and, and you, and it may not be that you're, a narcissist, it may be that you're so scared because you have to make those numbers. And so yeah. when I train people, and, and I have an approach to B2B selling that takes all the selling out of it, and, and I'm sure it shares many things with the Sandler method, but one part of it that I suggest to people is early in the conversation, and I love your opening, uh, this is a cold call, but somewhere early in the conversation, and this is probably not for a cold call, this is probably once you're in front of the prospect. What you say to them is, before we get started, let me tell you the five legitimate objections to my service and product. And they're going to say, what? You could say, the reason I'm telling you that is because if I talk to you, you come up with one objection and you may, I may even be able to sell you on it, but then you'll go to your boss and your boss will say, well, did you ask about these three other things? And so your boss is going to think that you're not very perceptive uh, and you're, you know, you're not that discerning. So what kind of buyer should they, they should, they shouldn't have you in their company because you're not that discerning. So here are the five objections that are legitimate. Uh, and, but I'd like to put them aside because, because I'm guessing if you're assigned to buy something, it's because there is a problem that you can't, this is a B2B sale. There's a problem that your company yeah. can't solve and you've been assigned to find a solution and that's somewhere between critical and urgent, maybe closer to urgent, which is why we're having the call today as opposed to something you put off. And, uh, and so what I want to do is focus on what that problem is. And if I can help you get clear about what that problem is, if I come up with a better solution, even from a competitor, I'm going to suggest that to you because if I can make you successful, even at my own cost, initially, you'll take my call in three months because I'm totally, fo I'm totally focused on your success. And your success is getting a gold star and a promotion because of a really smart buying decision as opposed to being told you're an idiot for buying something that the company can't use. Interestingly enough, that's very close to what we do with our upfront contracting process. So uh, another aspect that I think is really powerful is not only to raise the objections upfront, because we, we teach a rule, if you're going to fight, fight upfront. And if there's a bomb waiting to blow, you light the fuse. 
a lot of buyers are very wary of the salesperson because the salesperson seems to be withholding. I think you should be disarmingly honest. And I love the fact that you go with five. I normally lead with two and then I add some more along the way. I think the, the other aspect of that is that in raising those objections, it's very disarming because you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. Absolutely agree that you should be raising the objections. You should always tell them the truth, even if it does you harm, for exactly the reason that they can then trust you. Once you lie to a prospect or once you withhold information from them that is not legitimate to withhold, withholding your solution, I think, is perfectly fair because mm -hmm. that's the stuff you should get paid for. But not being completely transparent and completely upfront or manipulating the truth. In, in the UK, we had a, a case under Margaret Thatcher where uh, someone described himself as being economical with the truth. Once you lie and they find you out, they can never trust another word that comes out of your mouth. So I absolutely love that. You have a wonderful strategy uh, in order to calm the inner voice, the, the oh, fuck to okay uh, routine. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess you said it. Well, I, I say, oh, fudge. It's, so it's my that, podcast. I can say whatever. That's right. You can say that. Okay. So if you were the first one to go vulgar, let's go there. But um, uh, yes. And so in Just Listen, there is what's interesting. There were two chapters that people seemed to like. One was called Steering Clear of Toxic People. Yeah. And, and I guess... People who have a toxic person in their life have trouble steering clear of them. And the other one was how to go from OF to OK, which is earlier in the book. And, and that's basically how to calm yourself down uh, to avert this amygdala hijack, how to keep yourself calm in the face of being all agitated. And the steps are basically when something upsetting happens, instead of getting angry at the person inside, you go OF and you can fill in the blanks. And then after that, you take a deep breath and you let it out. And then you say, oh, geez. And then after that, you can, can say, oh, shoot. And uh, I have blanks and all these things, so I don't get too much pushback, but I still get pushback. And then you get to a point where you go, oh, well, meaning uh, it's not a bad dream. It happened. I'm going to have to deal with it. You know, and then eventually you say, okay, uh, what am I going to do now? basically a way to sort of talk yourself down from reacting. I'll add something to this because uh, I have something that helps me talk myself down is I use that, but what works better for me is I have what I call the dead mentor society. So I have seven mentors, they've all died. And what they all had in common is, to me, is they all enjoyed me which is very important. These are people I looked up to and I, and they didn't see that I was a burden or an annoyance. And that's really a, a special quality. If you're a boss, a manager, a mentor, enjoying your subordinate, it's amazing what you can heal in that person who feels like a burden everywhere else in their life. Mm -hmm. And, but they believed in me and saw value in me and saw a future for me that I didn't see all of them. So what happens now is when I think I've messed up or, or something's got me angry, I can conjure up any of these dead mentors, uh, and they have various accents, but whoever I'm conjuring up in my mind, they smile, and then I might say, oh, I can't believe what just happened. And then often I'll vent, and usually I'm venting about myself. So I tend, tend more to beat up on myself than other people. It's just kind of my, my neurosis. Mm -hmm. But now what happens, and I really 
helped is when I see myself venting about something I did or something foolish I did. Or even, you know, in the past, I would have vented about how this podcast is going. I'm saying, Mark, you're so tangential. You know, can you stick to one topic? You're all over the place. And, and what I do That's tomorrow. What? <laughs> That's my fault. Yeah. And so what I do is I conjure up one of these dead mentors and I could vent about that. And they look at me and they smile at me and they say, Mark, put a sock in it. And they say it with love. And basically what they're saying is, Mark, you're spontaneous. You're not scripted. You're not polished. Mm -hmm. And that's going to turn off some people. But people who are looking for someone who just seems real and spontaneous are going to like it. So just put a sock in it, Mark. You know, stop getting histrionic. And then I just remember any of these dead mentors, sort of what they did for me, what they meant to me. And I just feel appreciative and grateful. And I miss them. And as soon as I go there, I, I, I don't even know what I was upset about. So the OF to OK is something you can do. But if you ever have any mentors alive or deceased that you can conjure up and have them walk you through it, it's amazing how calming that can be. You've kind of tapped into something that I hadn't planned on, but uh, I'm going to go a little tangential now, if I may. In, in Sandal and in TA, they talk about the difference between identity versus role. Too often, what I find with my clients is that if I perform poorly in my role, then I start to speak to myself in a voice that if, it, if I had a friend who spoke to me like that, I'd belt them on the notes. What happens is you get what we call role bleed. So your role performance then starts to impact how you feel about who you are rather than what you do. And so you start attacking yourself at an identity level and say, you always do this. You're such a disappointment. You always mess up the separation between identity and role and understanding that a bad day at work doesn't make Mark a bad human being. It just means you messed up in role. And generally, no one dies. And often we, we see this dynamic of OK, not OK going on virtually everywhere around us where the television programming that certainly in the UK we obsess about, and I'm sure it's the same in the States, is things like the news, which is other people's misery, so that we can feel better about our own situation. And reality television, which is basically watching other people make a fool of themselves or suffer. And soap operas, which are all so that you can watch the program and you can say, thank God, by the grace of God, go I, that's not me or mine. I'm fascinated by how self-sabotaging we are as a species, how often we find ourselves undermining ourselves simply because of this inner voice. The uh, OF to OK uh, routine is incredibly powerful. I love the dead, dead mental society. And uh, I think I'd add one other thing, which is learning to forgive yourself. You know, I, I don't think people spend enough time forgiving themselves. And I think one of my favorite lines is, be your own best friend. Because it, you know, the world is tough enough. It doesn't really need your help to give you a damn good kicking. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give you a quote from a friend of mine on the topic of forgiveness. So I got to see. I have to. Please. I have to beat you at being tangential. So because I, I get, I get, okay. I get better <laughs> on these podcasts. I, I you. Okay. So, so, so you're going to say you win. That was more tangential. But I have to share this because uh, hopefully it'll be another useful nugget. So a friend of mine is a woman named Dr. Shawnee. Duperon, S-H-A-W-N-E, Duperon. And she has something called, I think, Project Forgive. And it was nominated for a Nobel Prize. And she teaches forgiveness around the world. And she gave me the best quote. And I like to collect quotes. 
and I had three that were that nothing could crack those top three until she gave me this quote, which by far is the best quote I've ever heard. And what she said is, forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. Forgiveness, forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. Right. And what was interesting is, because getting back to what you were saying is we can't forgive ourselves. Well, often one of the reasons we can't forgive ourselves is because we're unforgiving. And so down deep, when you feel, I'm not a very good person, I hold grudges, I'm jealous, I'm jealous of my best friend's successes, I hold grudges. So often one of the reasons we can't forgive ourselves is because we're unforgiving. So I applied her a quote, forgiveness is accepting the apology you'll never receive. I actually applied it to my father who died in 1995. And so I applied it to him in the last year or two, and I, and I imagined him saying, and he was very good with numbers, but you know he wasn't necessarily that comfortable with people. And since he was good with numbers, if I got a 90, he'd say, you can do better. And what that mm -hmm. meant to me is, this is crap. It's not good enough, yeah. which is not what he meant at all, because he's good with numbers. If you get a 90, you can get a 100. So in my mind, I imagined that really he apologized by saying, I never meant it was crap. In fact, you've accomplished so much. I'm so proud of you. I mean, you amaze me, and I'm sorry you took it that way. And, and one of the things that I tell parents when they're giving feedback, or if you're a manager giving feedback to your subordinate, you know, you can say, this is what you've done is really good, but you can do even better. And if he had said that, this is really good, but you can do even better, I think I would have taken it as, oh, it isn't crap. And so what happened is, in my mind, he apologized for that. And then I started apologizing to him in my mind. He's been dead for 20, 22 years. And I said, well, I'm sorry that I resented you when, when you didn't even mean what I thought you meant. I'm sorry for carrying around this chip on my shoulder. And when I say that, I sort of get emotional because I just say, what a, what a shame. What a shame of this misunderstanding and miscommunication. So I'm just sharing that because I have no idea where that fits in our podcast, but I think that that's a good takeaway. And if people use it, they might find a way to, to forgive others. And if you, can, if you can tap into the forgiving part of yourself towards others, you might actually be able to forgive yourself. I think it's your quote, which is one of my favorites, is let go or be dragged. I think that just sums up the whole process of non-attachment and that just realizing that you know, what's happened has happened. If you carry on dragging it on, we, we teach a thing called reach back and afterburn, mm -hmm. where you reach back into your history and you re-experience a miserable experience. So it could be uh, you were being bullied in the playground at school and you're 50 now. Um, and, you know, 42 years later or 48 years later, uh, you're still remembering this thing. But the afterburn is where you drag that emotion back into the present and you re-experience all that misery over and over and over and over again. A lot of salespeople have a tendency to catastrophize and to railroad. But I think I'd like to bring this all back into a management context as well. Because I think uh, managers are the most undertrained people in many organizations, particularly sales managers. Uh, they normally do what was done to them. They don't really know how to transfer their skills. They don't really coach their people. And I think if you understand someone's motivation and you understand what their drivers are and understand what matters to them, then it's much easier to find their motivation because motivation is an internal force. 
And I think one of the most powerful things that I picked up from Just Listen was how you deal with a teen or a child with an empathy jolt. I'd like to bring this together because I think that whole piece of you know, forgiveness uh, is accepting the apology that you'll never receive. Then taking that to the empathy jolt where you actually do the power apology, that, that's really impressive. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? And then I'd like to move on to the return on empathy that you talk about in your latest article. Okay, so here's the empathy jolt. And going back to neuroscience, if you're in a, in a stressful situation, you have an underperforming, but basically decent person uh, that you're managing. Given the fact that you're judged on your results, if you're a manager, you know, they say develop your people, but at the end of the day, you're judged on your results and your numbers. And if you're not meeting them, you know, then you run the risk of, you know, being criticized and not getting a promotion or, or raise. So you come down on people because you don't do the selling, they do the selling for you. And then if someone's not performing, they know about it and your cortisol is high, which means you can't really think rationally. And their cortisol is high because they know you're disappointed in them. So you're both running on cortisol and stressed out. Yeah. And the way the empathy jolt would be, and one of the ways to trigger it, and by the way, you can use this to actually solve any conflict with another person. If you ask yourself this simple question, I wonder what it's like for the other person right now. I wonder what it's like for the other person right now. What you'll find is you can't be curious about what's going on inside another person and empathetic to that and be vindictive and critical at the same time. And one of it's because when you do empathy, you're using the sensory part of your brain, you're sensing, whereas when you're criticizing, you're using the motor part of your brain, you know, when you're talking at someone. So the empathy jolt would be, and this is what you might say to an underperforming salesperson who you who you don't think is lazy, there's just something else going on. What it might look like is to reach out to them and, and, and you might say this, when do you have 10 minutes because I'd like to speak to you because I owe you an apology. Now they're going to think, what? Now this is incredibly powerful because I will tell you sadly, there are hundreds of millions of people in the world, maybe higher, who will never receive an unsolicited apology for their entire life, ever. And so, so it, talk about disarming, it's incredible. And they'll go, what, what, what? And again, I think what I like is getting their imagination going, like, what the heck is this about? God, what is going on? And so you meet with the person. What you say to them is, would you agree that we're looking at this situation, your sales, from two different points of view. I see it one way, you see it another way. Would you agree to that? And they say yes. And then what you say to them is, well, I want to apologize for never even listening to your side of the story or how you came to see it that way. You know, I just ran you over. And then I actually wrote a, uh, uh, an article for, at HBR, a Harvard Business Review, which you can find. And I think it's if you look up olive branch on steroids, you can find it. Goulston, olive branch on steroids, uh, HBR, you'll find it. And so the next thing you say is, and something, furthermore, I want to apologize for more, and I'm a little bit embarrassed about, is I didn't care about your story. 
You know, I just saw it as an excuse and I didn't want to hear any excuses and I didn't care about anything. And for all I know, your excuse might be tied to something. Your, your kid was sick or someone died or whatever. And because you don't trust me because I'm a bully, you never told me that. And then the final thing is if you give me the chance to correct this, tell me your side of the story. Because I believe in you. Very You're good. basically a good person. Uh, I wouldn't have you on the team if I didn't think that you had potential and were good. And I, to be honest, I think I've blown it by running you over. I'm sorry. I will tell you, you do something like that, especially if it's a person who's never been apologized to in their life, they will remember yeah. that conversation as one of the top three conversations in their entire life. It'll change them on the spot. Well, I think there are two other really powerful applications in sales. One is to turn around a failing account, and another is to sell past no. I, I can see how, exactly how you could use both of those uh, that uh, tactic uh, in the context of both of those contexts. So, thank you for that. That's really helpful. Well, there is a, um, there is a chapter I think you may remember called "Taking It All the Way to No." That was one of the chapters. Yeah. And so, okay. since you brought it up, I'll mention it. So, if you get just listen. Uh, there's a chapter, I think, called Taking It All the Way to Know, and I actually share the story of a friend, of, a mentor of mine named Walter Dunn, one of the dead mentors, and he was one of the main deal makers for Coca-Cola. He got Coca-Cola into Disneyland, Major League Baseball, and he was terrific. And he told me this story about going to one of the big theater chains, talking about bringing a Coke into their lobbies, and the person said to him... Um, uh, Walter, we've decided to go with Pepsi. Now, Walter, without yeah. missing a beat, said to the person, uh, and this is taking it all the way to no, he said, what, what did I fail to ask? What situation did I fail to discover? What did I fail to address that if we had addressed it, your no might have been different? And because Walter was incredibly likable, the person said, well, something you didn't ask and I'll tell you, is Pepsi has uh, agreed to underwrite our renovating our lobbies. And Walter said, oh, Coke can do that. And the, and the guy said, okay, you get the account. And so the power of uh, where you can apply this is when someone says no to you, they're often anxious. Their cortisol goes up because mm -hmm. they expe expect you to get defensive or hurt or upset because that's Absolutely. what they expect. And when instead, instead of their fear that you're going to get upset happening, you continue the conversation by saying, uh, I understand the no, but, but what did we not solve or, or address or talk about that if we had, you know, the no might have been a different answer? Absolutely. And again, we, we teach a very similar technique. Uh, for anyone who uh, already has just listened, it's chapter 22, page 176. But definitely worth reading that because 80% of my business comes after people have told me no, which frankly, if you hate prospecting as much as I do, is a godsend. You know, if you're closing the majority of the people who say no to you, you want to get that no out early as well. Yeah, so here, um, so yeah. uh, really interesting. So here's a tip that's, that's similar to that, and it's, I think it overflows with empathy. And I'd like your feedback to think, uh, tell me whether you think I'm you know, really off. Something that, that when I go in and train companies and uh, train 
people on selling through empathy or what I call return on empathy and why it works yeah. is if you're selling to some a male, more so male than female, and I'll tell you why, but if you're selling to a male over the age of 40 or 45, they're more concerned with making a mistake than upon getting something right. And the reason being is that a lot of men's self-esteem is built on how many mistakes they've made in life. And they don't share those with their peers because they think their peers don't make those mistakes. They don't share it with their families because they want their families to look up to them. So they stew on it inside. And there's a cumulative effect because they don't deal with them and they don't tell anyone about it. And so often what happens is a, a men over the age of 45 are afraid of making another mistake. They're more fear-driven than, you know, when they're younger in their 20s, they're not so fear-driven. They're more fearless. So if you're dealing with someone and you've covered all their objections, covered everything, and you know you have a solution to their problem with your product or service, something you might fit into the conversation, but you know, but but shoehorn it in in a in a in a smooth way, you might say, Can I ask you a question that's sort of related to what we're talking about, but maybe not so? And hopefully they'll say yes out of curiosity. And you say You've been disappointed before, haven't you? And they'll say, what? You say, yeah, you've made decisions in your life. You've made some buying decisions in your life that as right as you thought you were, were as wrong as you turned out to be. And if you're like all of us, so you want to bury your neck next to them, you don't want to make them feel foolish and a failure alone. You could say, if you're like all of us, we've all made that. And there have been times when we've made decisions that turned out to be bad decisions, where after we got through it, we said, I can't go through that again. I, just, I, I can't go through it again. I, I'm amazed I got past it. And is it possible, without your being consciously aware of it, that buying my service or product is, is kind of similar to other decisions you've made, and you're not 110% sure? that this decision will be successful. And is it possible that, you know, what's holding you back is you don't want to go back to how you felt when you made a bad buying decision and what that did to your confidence in yourself. See, what's happening is you're psychologically tracking with they're unconscious. And then you can share something so that they're not embarrassed alone. You can say, look, I've been there too. And you, can, and you can share some decision you made. You know, it'd be best to not share it about your company, uh, but just a decision you made that backfired. Uh, but here's the key. If you get someone to open up to you and share that, you can't do anything. You can't do a bait and switch. You can't do anything that hurts them. Because when you get someone yeah. to open up and be vulnerable, and then you take advantage of them, they deserve to come after you with all their fire and fury because you Absolutely. got them to reveal this and in spite of that you took advantage of them but you can work that into the conversation but a lot of people told me especially in financial services they say boy are you right on because you know many of them thought they had a many of our prospects and customers thought they had a much greater risk tolerance than they actually do and we sold to what they told us was their risk tolerance but they all turned out to be nervous Nellies. <laughs> uh, but so does any of that make sense to you? Mark? 
Absolutely. I mean, we routinely tell people up front that they have the right to say no, that we empathize with them by saying, you know, that's not unusual. Everybody suffers from this. If you feel it, say it. Mark, can I tell you what my big fear is? Mm -hmm. my, my big fear is that you're nervous because this is something that's out of the ordinary. It's not something you've done before. And I get the sense that you've had bad experiences with salespeople in the past. Can, can I suggest that, look, why don't we just end it now? Why, why don't we just not take this any further? And then, you know, we can part as friends. And if we see each other in the street, we're not going to cross over. We'll happily meet each other because I don't want, I, I hate pressure. And I, I don't think you appreciate the pressure. And I'm feeling a lot of pressure at the moment. Are you? And by, by doing that, by empathizing with them and by giving them permission to say no, by recognizing that it, it's normal, you know, this kind of thing happens all the time and recognizing what their fear is, it lowers their resistance. So I, I think your strategy is incredibly elegant and certainly something that I'll be recommending people do. And you know, pay attention, guys. Then you know, Mark really does know his stuff. Talk, talk to me a little bit more about uh, this return on empathy. The return on empathy, and I say that because uh, there's there's something else uh, I'll just share, and hopefully hopefully people have got uh, got some nuggets out of this. There's a slight tangent, but it relates to ROE, return on empathy. There's a term called mental real estate, and a friend of mine who designed Disney Paris and Disney Tokyo, he told me about the term, and he said mental real estate occurs. When you take something that's familiar in people's minds and you repurpose it. So he said Pirates of the Caribbean owns the word pirates in the minds of kids. So Disney owns pirates. And so when you take something that's familiar, you get into someone's mind. But then when you twist it, you get more mental real estate. So my book, Talking to Crazy, has a lot of mental real estate. Because a lot of people will smile when they hear that and they say, I need that today. So it's familiar. <laughs> and so return on empathy has the same thing, especially when you're trying to get through to people who are focused on results and returns. Sometimes when I'm talking to someone, since I'm you know, a big proponent of empathy, is I'd say, how's your ROE? And they'll say, what? Yeah. I'll say, well, you return on empathy. And they'll go, what? Yeah, well, you're into returns, aren't you? Into results, yeah. So what's your return on empathy? Well, what do you mean? Uh, well, let me ask you. Think of your least empathic salespeople. Think of your least empathic executive. Think of your least empathic, let's even say they offend a lot of people. What are their returns like? And they'll chuckle because it's a gotcha. They'll say, it's awful. And then I'll say, so why do you put up with them? And sometimes they smile and they say, because uh, because I don't even want to deal with them. Just having a conversation with them to fire them is just too exhausting. So I avoid them. Oh, well, maybe you want to do something about it. So the opposite of empathy is not caring. And something I want to point out, because I'll tell you, whoever you're listening, I'll tell you something about Marcus that you need to know. Something I write about in Just Listen is when you're going to ask a question that gets people to open up, you need to care about the answer. I remember I talked about in Just Listen, I was having lunch with two young people, 30-somethings, and the, and the guy asked questions that got you to open up. 
but it felt like he was just repeating something that he learned and he really didn't care. And they were good questions. Mm-hmm. I actually took notes on them because the woman with us, you know, said, you know, oh, oh yeah, I went to college, such and such, I studied this. And I took him aside, the guy, and I said, I got to tell you something. You had some great questions, but if I was a discerning buyer, if I was a billionaire, and I know billionaires, uh, I would have picked up that you took some sales training class and you didn't give a damn about the answer. It was just something mm-hmm. you were told to say. And, uh, you know, and just to get to the sales thing. And I got to tell you, the wealthier the person is, the more offended they'd be. So what I say to people, and this is what I want to bring out, is Marcus cares. I know he's been sort of saying, this is what we do in our training, but I've known Marcus for some time. And I think he wants to share with listeners, you know, there are techniques available at Sandler and they're, they're sound and they... And, and he's making the connection between Sandler and my book. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud. Uh, I'm honored to be part of that. But Marcus cares about your answers. And, and I think that's important. So what I'd say to you, if you take any sales training, you actually got to care about your customer. Absolutely. And, and, and that's why he emphasized at the beginning, you know, you got to be candid. You can't lie to people. You know, people will forgive an honest mistake, but they will never forgive or forget you if you lie to them. I think the most important thing, if you want to succeed in sales, you have to care more about your customer than your success. And if you do that, you'll be so successful, it'll amaze you. Mark, first of all, thank you. I'm blushing. I I absolutely agree. The intent behind your question and the genuine desire to understand. Um, I mean, you, you talk about be interested, not interesting. And that's very close to our philosophy. If you are not genuinely interested, if you don't care about the prospect, then you have no right to be in sales because selling is about creating a win, win or no deal outcome. And a no deal is fine. But unless it's good for the customer, unless it's good for you, I don't think you have any right to be selling. And it's your job as a seller to manage that process and to really be tough on yourself. Even if you need the business, if it's not right, you have to tell them. And I remember when a few years back, when the recession hit, I made some terrible, terrible decisions. And I was literally down to 30 pounds to my name. And I could either park or I could put fuel in the car. So I filled the car up and I parked and I had to make uh, some sales. But what was really interesting was throughout that time, I was ready to then have to face up to the car park and say, look, I haven't got any money. My cards are all maxed out. But what was really interesting was because I was ready to take the no and I was ready to give the no, people saw that I was authentically selling on the basis that it was good for them. And I was ready to walk away. And I I don't think any salesperson has the right to sell selfishly. I think selling is a real force for good if it's done well. Unfortunately, it's often not. I've I've just realized we've hit the hour and I don't want to overstay our welcome. So Mark, thank you so, so much. I've been wanting to uh, speak to you and have you on the podcast for ages. It's a genuine privilege and a delight, and your work is fantastic. 
please get Mark's books, Just Listen and Talking to Crazy. Read his article in HBR. Read his article on Return on Empathy. Watch the videos of him in Moscow. Mark, do you have any parting words to the listeners? Yeah. Here's your homework, which has nothing to do with what we've talked about. I want you to think about someone who was there for you in your life through a difficult time and helped you. They either stood up for you, uh, they stood by you, uh, they stood up to you to prevent you from doing something destructive or to push you to do something you didn't think you could do. And if they're dead, you find their next of kin. And I want you to give them a, a power thank you. And a power of thank you, and that's in Just Listen also, has three parts. You thank them specifically for something they did. It's not a generic, oh, thanks for being my friend. You say, thank you for that evening when I was out of my mind and you took me in. The second part of a power of thank you is went out of their way to do it. You know, the effort they made to do that for you. And the third thing is what it personally meant to you. It'll make your day. It'll make their day. If it's their next of kin, they'll be grateful. It'll get the monkey off your back because uh, there's probably people that you didn't thank. So let me end with a power thank you to Marcus. Not only has Marcus had me on his show, he's been a supporter of mine for a long time now. There's all kinds of books that he can recommend, and he chooses to recommend mine. And he recommends them passionately. And I have a feeling that, I mean, Sandler has great books. If you go to their site, they have amazing books. And I'm guessing he's recommending my book as much as he recommends those things. So he goes out of his way to share the value of my books when he could just be sharing the value of Sandler publications. And so what it personally means to me is, you know, I'm pretty influential in the world. I'm pretty impactful. I'm not a sales guy. Uh, but I'm pretty influential because, you know, I connect with people. And so what it personally means to me is that for someone who's successful in sales and an organization like Sandler that's hugely successful in sales, the fact that you would want to introduce me to your customers and prospects and people when I'm just an empathy guy, that means a lot to me. So I wanted to thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. You're way more than an empathy guy. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm blushing. I'm kind of lost for words at the moment, but I really appreciate that. And I have to tell you, being on the receiving end of that, I feel fantastic. So I, I have to tell all the listeners that actually this stuff really works. I, I, I know about the power, thank you. I, you know, I, I know how the structure works, but when you're on the receiving end, you feel damn good. Um, so on that note, Mark Goldston, thank you so much. Everybody, please listen to this podcast. Take notes. If you have questions, please email them to me at marcus.kauke at sandler.com. And if you want to get in touch with Mark, then ping those questions across to me and I'll forward them on to him. He is a very public figure, so if you want to go direct, then I'm sure you can track him down. But I'll happily be the conduit, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. So thank you all very much, and Mark Goulston, thank you again. Thank you. If you'd like to read Mark's books, he's written Get Out of Your Own Way at Work, Real Influence, 
and my two favourites are Talking to Crazy and Just Listen by Dr. Mark Goulston. Get in touch and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.